0: So you might be surprised to see all three of us sitting up here tonight. You're going to get all of us tonight. (laughs) All of each one of us and all of us. Because tonight we're going to um, offer teachings on the fourth noble truth, which is the eightfold path of the Buddha. And as you remember, in the four noble truths, the The Four Noble Truths, which really teach us about suffering and how to bring suffering to an end. And we have this path that was offered to us by the Buddha. Fortunately, he didn't just end with saying, you know, there's suffering and there's a cause and there's a way out. He actually said, follow this path, and this will lead you to great understanding, great liberation, great compassion, great wisdom. And so when we practice, whether we're on retreat or whether we're off of retreat, what we're practicing is the Eightfold Path. And so we wanted to offer the teachings on this tonight, since it's such a significant, um, really the heart of the teachings in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. What makes it very nice for the three of us to teach this is that the Eightfold Path is divided into what's called the three baskets or the three, three sections. Uh, it's often in uh, Pali or in Sanskrit, the ancient language is called sila samadhi panya. And sila me is, is translated as morality or the ethical aspect of the path. And Anna will be offering teachings on that. Uh, The samadhi is translated as meditation or sometimes concentration, the the meditative art of of what we're developing and how we will present that. And the other basket or other section is what's called uh, panya or wisdom. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And you'll see how each of these factors are all interrelated and all connected. And so it'll be very interesting as you listen, you'll see how each one is dependent on the other. They're, they all circle around each other and support each other. And when we start at the beginning and go to the end, the eight factor on the path, we see that it, then that leads right back into the first factor again. It just operates as a, as a circle. So there's no real end in some way. There's not an end to the path. We just keep circling around the path. And it, beca- we become much, it becomes much more refined, much more subtle, much more deep, more profound as we continue to walk this path. So the, these, this basket of, of uh, uh, pra, uh, panya, or in Sanskrit it's called prajna, means wisdom. And when you break down prajna into its uh, components, the pra means higher or supreme or um, great or greater, the pra. And jna is, it, it points to the consciousness or understanding Aspect. And so prajna means higher consciousness or supreme understanding or higher mind. So it's really the development. Wisdom is the development and the cultivation of the higher consciousness, awake, what we call it also the awake consciousness, which is ultimately the development of Wisdom. So this practice, it can seem sometimes that what we're practicing is mindfulness. But mindfulness is only one of the factors on this path, which leads us to wisdom, which opens us up to compassion. So it's really the development of wisdom and compassion. And when we talk about the higher mind, the higher mind is a mind that is in service of a, of a higher good, or in service of the good, or in service of that which is skillful, or, or that which is wholesome, that which is good. And so, so as we walk and as we develop, we're actually developing our own goodness, our innate goodness, the goodness that is really here and possible for us. This is the, this is the aim, this is the goal of this, of this path. So, as we cultivate wisdom, one of the um, kind of the stuff of this wisdom or the texture of this wisdom, the way we know it, is through discernment or wise discernment. So, the mind gets more and more clear, the mind gets more um, uh, focused, more precise, and so we can begin to discriminate the different aspects of our experience which is supported by the, um, the factors of the meditation, mindfulness and concentration. So we're really, really encouraging this discerning wisdom. This is really the, what, what drives our practice, is this discernment. And so this opens us up to the first factor, which is um, the factor which's called a wise view, or right view. The word in Pali is sama, before each of these factors. So samadhiti is translated either as wise view or right view. And what this is pointing towards is really this um, capacity, this possibility of seeing things clearly. Through this discriminating, through seeing clearly and wisely, we start to look at the nature of this reality more clearly and start to understand the laws of what, what, makes this, what makes this up, what, what, how does all this happen, how does this operate? This is really called the dharma, the laws of nature, or the, the way things are. And so the first understanding, or view or understanding, uh, ditti is either view or understanding. The first one is the seeing into or understanding the four noble truths. This is what supports the awakening of a wise view. It's really the foundation of our path. And so this, by looking into and practicing the Four Noble Truths, we begin to to cleanse our view, our perception, we start to see more clearly the way things are. In this case, really starting to understand what gives rise to our suffering and what brings an end to our suffering. And we start implementing those actions and those uh, uh, practices so that we can begin to uh, uh, cultivate more wisdom and compassion We, in the wise understanding, we always also want to understand the law of karma, which, when as we pay attention, particularly also in the four noble truths, we start to see that when there's a cause, there's an effect; that everything we do has a consequence, and so we want to start paying attention to what we're actually doing because there are going to be consequences, and we can start to influence and and impact that. Uh, outcome so that we don't find ourselves in these situations and wonder how we got here and you know continue to suffer from the same patterns and actions and things we say again and again and again we can start to change that. So it's understanding this law of karma and understanding what's called these uh, three characteristics which we haven't gone into very much but we have mentioned where you start to see that, that things are coming and going, that we can't really hold on to things in the way that we imagined we could, and things aren't actually so personal. They're not as personal as we imagined that they were. And as we start to understand that more, we see the nature of reality the way it is, it helps us begin to let go. We don't hold on quite as tightly, quite as strongly. So we start to see that it brings about more clarity, it brings about a little bit more relinquishment, and this opens up to then the second factor, which is called wise uh, intention or wise thought, or it's also translated as aspiration, this samasankappa. So the view begins to influence our thoughts and our intentions. It's also kind of a purification that happens, that we, through the discrimination and being able to see things more clearly, we can start to notice what are we thinking and what are we setting in motion? What am I actually intending and acting out of? Like that, what we were talking about earlier around the motivation. What's happening that I'm saying this? What's happening that I'm acting in this way? In every moment of experience, there is an impulse to either think, speak, or act. Every moment, there's an energy moving within our human condition that arises as thought, impulse, or intention, and then the action, and then the result of that action. And we can begin to see that process, that sequence, what's arising through the thought, then through the impulse or the intention to act. And the, our energy is going to follow that impulse. Whatever we put our energy into is what is going to come into manifestation. That's the law. That's the way it is. And so if we can start to pay attention to what thoughts we're actually following, what impulses we're actually following, we can begin to transform what actually comes into manifestation. So this, this intention is like a, like a... I always think of it as like a bow and an arrow. Like I take that arrow and I pull it back, and I, what am I aiming at? What am I aiming at? What am I focusing on? That I, What's the target for me that I'm trying to hit? And the more that I can actually pay attention to that, the more I can bring my life into a quality of more love and care and compassion and wisdom, understanding, practicing these factors on the Eightfold Path, taking, doing actions that are going to bring about more of that kind of, of care in my life. The Buddha actually talks about three kinds of thoughts that we need to be paying attention to or thoughts and intentions are actually very similar because a thought is like that impulse. The thought almost starts to move into action unless we're very attentive or discriminating and we can stop it and say "Uh, no I don't really want to say the words that I'm thinking in my mind right now to that person because if I do that's probably going to start setting something in motion that I don't want to set in motion. And if we're paying attention to that, we can stop it. We can push that, that stop button on the, on the remote control and, and not go there. Because, and then as we pull back and, and stop, we're going to put, bring some other kind of experience into the fore. So the Buddha says there's three kinds of thoughts or intentions to pay attention to and to cultivate. One is the intention for renunciation or letting go, this stopping, this letting go, which really increases that resistance to the pull or the force of desires, those, those strong desires that are moving through our mind. We practice p- this pulling back, this letting go, renouncing the forces of these desires and these pulls. The second one is the intention for goodwill which is also metta, or loving-kindness. It cultivates and develops loving-kindness. And this resists the forces of anger and aversion. As we, as we develop and put more energy into the, into the intentions and thoughts of goodwill, it, it overcomes the aversion and the anger. The third one is the intention for harmlessness, <coughs> for non-harming. As we practice this, this develops the heart of compassion because we don't engage ourselves in activities of cruelty and uh, aggressive actions, violent actions. We are overcoming that, that tendency and developing the heart of compassion. This practice is a practice of inclining the mind. I, I see this as the, the turning the mind. I'm turning my mind, which takes a certain amount of effort, uh, how, the qualities that Howie will talk about. It takes that, that uh, discrimination and the, and the energy and the mindfulness and concentration to do that turning, to engage in that turning. And yet we need to begin to slow down a little bit and maybe even stop or pause at times so that we're not just caught in these strong forces of our conditioned behavior. Otherwise if we don't have the mindfulness, there's not enough consciousness, that's what will take over. We will feel like we are just caught up in some random kind of personality, wonder how we got here and wonder how we can get out of it without knowing how but we can. So in order to transform our heart and our mind we really have to reflect on what, where are we placing our intentions? How, what thoughts are we following? Are we following thoughts that are skillful and that will lead to more harmony and happiness and connection? Are we following thoughts and then impulses and intentions that lead to more uh, divisiveness and conflict and 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 negativity and separation? So we really ref- we we take that in as part of our, uh, part of our wise reflection, because whatever the however the mind is turning, that's what we're setting in motion. The energy follows thought. Energy follows intention. And then that cultivates our karma. So we're actually transforming our karma. We're transforming our lives through this wise discrimination, through this deep reflection. And we awaken our emotional intelligence. We become more emotionally intelligent. And it's also said that then we awaken our altruistic mind, the mind that is really connected with the greater good, we, can, we, we understand the laws, we understand the Dharma and what, how this all works together and what we're actually setting in motion and how we can transform this, not only ourselves, but the world. And you can see then how these thoughts then lead to action. Thoughts lead to action. Cue. <laughs>
1: uh-huh.
0: oh. <laughs> Thoughts lead to skillful or unskillful action.
2: Hey. <laughs> okay. So Sharda has very beautifully described wise view and wise intention, the first two... Um, First two steps on the path of liberation. And um, so I will describe the next three uh, steps which the Buddha talked about. And they are wise action, wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. So, in some sense, speech, action, and livelihood are where the rubber meets the road. So we can sit around the meditation hall and have all these beautiful, discriminating views and intentions. But what happens when we open our mouths? You got a little taste of that this afternoon. What happens is some kind of thing takes over, you know, that we may not even recognize as being ourselves, and we begin to speak uh, in a way that doesn't seem to carry our intention. So I like to describe this path of, as a training really that these three baskets are three areas that we need to practice, that we need to train our minds and hearts in, in how to do these. It's not obvious. We don't just open our mouth and outpours wise speech. But it is a, a practice that we use the support of our good intentions, the support of mindfulness, to begin to explore, to begin to reflect on how it is that we can make these choices in our lives that will lead to greater sense of well-being and happiness. Um, The Buddha talked about Them in the context of a sutta called the Mangala Sutta, and I want to describe a little more about that sutta, but first I'd like to start with a story. This is a story of a time um, some years ago when I, it was summertime, and I was on a road trip in northern New Mexico, which is a very beautiful place to explore in the summer, wonderful backcountry roads where you can stop and swim in rivers and picnic. And it's it's a lovely place to be. And I was having a wonderful time with a dear friend and we were just having a very kind of unplanned, adventurous trip. And so At one point, we needed to fill the car with gas, so we stopped at a country gas station, and we were getting the gas. In those days, it wasn't pay at the pump. It was you had to go inside and pay. So we went inside, and on the cashier counter, there was a little basket of fortunes. It said, your fortune, take one. So I gaily plucked a fortune out of the basket, and I opened it up, and here's what it said a major life crisis awaits you. <laughs> Don't imagine you can't lose all your money. You can. And I was like, holy mackerel. It was quite a, like having a, a bucket of cold water thrown in your face. You know, it was, it was rather sobering in the context of this gay and happy trip. It was a sober reminder of the fact that as happy as the day and the trip was, it was only a fleeting wave in the big ocean of life. And who knows what the future will bring? None of us knows what the future will bring. Not one person on the whole planet can say what is going to happen next. Eventually, in all of our lives, there will be some kind of crisis. We might as well get used to the idea because it will happen for most people. I mean, even if it's to die and that's the only thing that ever goes wrong in your life is that you die. That will be kind of a big event. So the Buddha said, where is true protection to be found? How can we protect ourselves in this world that's pretty wild and pretty... uh, uh, dangerous, you know. We never know what's going to happen. So in the old days, just as now, people wore talismans to protect them, to, to to create a sense of security, you know, like the old rabbit's foot or even this amulet that I'm wearing. It doesn't have anything in it, but it's more decorative. But that that kind of thing that we still are attracted to, wearing some sort of protective amulet. But he said in the Mangala Sutta, he he did a clever uh, taking that image and turning it into wisdom and saying that where true protection is found, and it is in the cultivation of sila, samadhi, and panya, that is where true protection is to be found. When we live in harmony with reality, with the way that it is, we bring protection and blessings into our lives. The cultivation of these qualities of heart and mind, of training our hearts and minds in wise view, wise intention, learning how to speak in a way that communicates both truth and kindness and sensitivity to the timing of your message, there's you know a lot written now about wise speech and the practice of speaking in a way that doesn't uh, create more conflict that cre- doesn't create harm to yourself and to others. you know when we when we say something and then we regret it that has consequences, just as Sharda was saying. So learning this is a whole piece of practice that it is worthwhile giving time to. The Buddha said in the Mangala Sutta, let me read you some of the uh, ways he expressed it. Um... Avoiding those of foolish ways, associating with the wise, these are the highest blessings. This speaks to the wisdom of hanging out with fellow sangha members, with people who value this kind of cultivation in and that we can uh, it rubs off on us, you know, like here at spirit rock it 's so wonderful to be in a community of people who value what we are doing here and who understand the value of living in a way that is not causing, you know, we're not perfect, but our our vision of, of do no harm is pervasive throughout the community, and it's a wonderful way to... Uh, learn how to how it looks, how it feels to be in a community where people are practicing in this way. Providing for family, cherishing family, and ways of work that harm no being. These are the highest blessings. Steadfast in restraint, shunning evil ways, avoiding intoxicants that dull the mind. These are the highest blessing. And he goes on and on and Patience and willingness to accept one's faults. These are the highest blessings. Seeing for oneself the noble truths and the realization of nibbana. These are the highest blessings. Those They who live by following this path know peace wherever they go. And every place for them is safe. These are the highest blessings. So I'd like to contemplate the foundation, the ethical foundation of practice as a great blessing that we bring into our lives and a great protection for us to know that we have this noble intention to cause no harm. Not that we will be perfect at it, but that it is our value. It is something that we value and that when we act in that manner, we feel the support inside of the goodness of that, of the wisdom of that, of the compassion of that. And it is a tremendous sense of... um, It gives you a sense of well-being about who you are and what your life is about. As Sharda said, these training, what I call trainings of sila, samadhi, and panya, are, uh, they go together and they support each other. A visual image that I like of this way in which they are, of, in some way, of a piece. we could say that training our mind and heart in sila, samadhi, and panya is like growing a firmly rooted tree. When you think about it, a tree has roots, a trunk, and branches with leaves. A tree is not a tree without all three parts. In the same way, in our spiritual practice, it is not complete without all three aspects. Sila is like the roots. Samadhi is like the trunk. And panya is like the crown of the tree. They all depend on each other. They all go together. And this represents the totality of a mature spiritual practice. Many of us, when we first came in contact with Asian teachers and we heard about Nibbana and enlightenment and awakening, we got very excited and we wanted to just immediately have that experience and then be done with the whole thing. We didn't realize how important at that time that this ethical foundation was, for example, that actually living the teachings is very, very important if you sit down to meditate with a mind that is racked with regret, with remorse, with memories of bad things that you have done, your practice is not going to blossom. Some of the Asian teachers have remarked that we are a little bit naive that way, so that we, we they, they have said that trying to uh, establish a meditation practice without an ethical foundation is like trying to row a boat that is tied to a dock. We're just not going to get anywhere because we're just going to have to keep sort of, you know, catching up with the bad feelings inside. So this ethical foundation is something that um, some of us may feel resistant to because of previous religious training you know, it may sound like the Ten Commandments or something like that, but it's really not meant to be taken as an external observance, but it is meant to be taken as part of this deep reflection inside of one's being, this deep reflection in one's own heart about what you value and what it is that you wish to commit yourself to. It it thrives on a kind of self-honesty and clear intention. I'd like to read a story from the Jataka tales, uh, which are stories that represent the Buddha in his previous lives. And this story is about a king I'll read you what Sharon Salzberg, how she described this story. She said, it, uh, it is about a king who one day offered half of his kingdom and the hand of his daughter in marriage to any man who could steal something without anyone at all finding out about it. This announcement was proclaimed throughout the land, and many young men started showing up with various items. Somebody would come and say, I have a ruby necklace that I stole and nobody knows about it. And the king would say, sorry, forget it. Somebody else would come up and say, I have a splendid chariot and I stole it and nobody knows about it. And the king would again say, sorry, forget it. So this confused everybody. Until one day, a young man showed up with nothing. The king said, so? The young man said, I don't have anything at all. The king said, well, why not? The man said, because it is not really possible to steal something with absolutely nobody knowing about it, because I myself would always know about it. This was the right answer. The king had been looking for an heir with wisdom. We know. We know. And we begin to let ourselves know that we know as we practice. So that this this sense of aligning ourselves with wise uh, view and wise intention takes place deep inside the heart as a piece of self-honesty, an intimate connection within ourselves, of what matters. And seeing that another piece to this, this wise action is what, what also what Sharda spoke about, understanding that what we do, <coughs> what, how we act, really matters. You know, a lot, a lot of times you, you think, well, it doesn't really matter what I do. There's a quote I love, and I don't know who said it, but it's good done anywhere is good done everywhere. Part of this is based on this understanding of interdependence, that we are all connected. We live in a web of connections. Who is to say what the power of one clear intention is? how it manifests in the world. But we see more and more in our own lives how things ripple out. That's why we like to remind you all that we are practicing not for ourselves alone, but for the welfare and benefit of all those people that we, whose lives we touch. Our families will feel the impact of our presence. When you go home, when you go back to your families, they're going to love how you are. They may not understand what you've been up to, but they can see that there's this person who seems quite open and very kind and friendly, and they're going to just eat it up. Because what you have done here will, will show itself in a myriad way, in myriad ways. Now, you may not feel that, but I' looking into your face, I can see that they're going to see what I see, which is this greater openness, this softness, this receptivity, this ability to listen and be present. So what we do matters, and good done anywhere resonates everywhere. So that is wise action, wise livelihood. I feel like right now in the world, um, am I running over? Okay. Wise Wise livelihood, uh, I feel like the whole planet right now is having a conversation about wise livelihood. You know, the Occupy movement is kind of saying, wait a minute, you guys are getting all the money. What about us? What about wise livelihood? How do we make a world where there's a more of an equality in in the way that things are shared? You got all the toys. What about us? We don't have any toys. We can't even earn the money to buy the toys. There's this sort of very interesting conversation. It's not a Buddhist conversation, but it's a conversation that is uh, like a, like trying to correct something that's out of balance. That's the way I see it. So, to have a, a livelihood, something that we do every day that contributes to the greater good, you could say, of everyone, that is what the Buddha called one of the highest blessings. That is a way that we are having a in a very big impact in the world by by doing work that creates no harm that that generates goodwill that generates sharing and generosity and compassion how fortunate to have such a livelihood if you have that and if you don't to to see that it's it's a piece of wisdom to move in that direction And again, you know, like being around Spirit Rock and there's so many wonderful people who work here, who are here, not for the money. Nobody at Spirit Rock is making big bucks, you know. We're not absconding with the funds. (laughs) We are just barely making it. But people who work here, have something else that is a great treasure, which is this sense of a livelihood that is contributing to the welfare of all, and that is gives them a great deal of uh, joy in their work so i'm I'm about to move on here to let Howie speak, but I just wanted to share um something. So the last thing I want to say is that because these these, uh, factors all work together, it's important to, to recognize that wise view and wise intention by themselves are not enough they need to be supported by sila, by wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. On the other hand, sila by itself, qualities of ethical uh, action, those are not enough all by themselves. They are not liberating. Being a good, kind-hearted person doesn't necessarily lead to liberation. The monk Buddhadasa wrote, morality by itself stops well short of the elimination of craving, aversion, and delusion. Therefore, it cannot completely do away with suffering. So we need the next piece of Samadhi.
1: Beautiful. I just have to finish what you said with a little poem and it still brings it all together and it actually leads into what I'm about to say this is a Hafiz poem that I think really speaks to the, Anna kept using the word training and Sharda used the word training and this reminder that uh, how we how we, uh, I've already made a mess it's okay Uh, how we act, what we think what we do has consequences and uh, and a reminder that uh, that there, that we are in every single moment uh, living in a a creative field, an open field of possibility. And it's another understanding of emptiness or openness that it's it's really wide open right now. This this moment means nothing until you add to it some view, some action, some some thought, some speech, whatever it is. And whatever it is that you drop into this very moment that we're sitting in has a result. And thinking about sila or ethical conduct, uh, I thought that this would be a nice way to segue from what Anna said to what I'm going to say. This is a poem from Hafiz called To Build a Swing. You carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. You have all the genius to build a swing in your backyard for the divine. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun. Let's start laughing, drawing blueprints, gathering our talented friends. I'll help you with my divine lyre and drum. Hafiz will sing a thousand words you can take into your hands like golden saws, silver hammers, polished teakwood, strong silk rope. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So this establishing wise uh, understanding, wise thought or intention, wise action is, is building a swing for great joy, for the possibility of really being happy in this very life. A reminder again that the Buddha's teaching is about happiness. It's about well-being. It's not just about coping. It's not just about healing a problem. It's not solving an issue. They're endless. It's about a dramatic shift in the way we relate to all issues and in our capacity to sit like a mountain or like a big open impartial sky in the middle of it all and let it all flow through. So it's a, it, there's a great possibility that this, uh, this speaks of. And you can see that you've been planting those seeds as Anna acknowledged your softness and your beauty. We get to look at you and see the light that has entered your eyes. The seeds that you have planted from the three parts of the Eightfold Path that we've primarily been practicing here, from wise effort or right effort, energy and effort, applying your energy to cultivate uh, what's wholesome and what's helpful. From wise concentration, from collecting your mind and your body, putting your mind and body together in harmony, and applying that collectedness to wise mindfulness to see clear, more clearly what's going on here knowing that if you and perhaps you have a sense now that when you stay here when you gather yourself here when you use this capacity in your mind to connect or to gather or direct your attention it begins to plug you in this is the way i like to think of it plug you in to an inexhaustible current called life not the idea of life but the direct experience of you sitting in a place, what we call ekagata, one pointedness, just at this single point. Do any of you feel more like you are sitting in a single point now? Does that make that language make sense? The deeper meaning of the word ekagata is the one point that includes everything. So the inevitable result of coming to this single point, of gathering our mind and body together, this is what we this is what we do with our energy and effort. we gather our attention together. This produces a sense of of one pointedness. We naturally, even though we're attending so carefully to ourselves, we naturally start to feel more connected with everything around us that's the paradox of concentration that coming to that single point helps us realize that that sense of interbeing, that sense of interconnectedness that sense that not one thing in this world exists independently apart from anything else when we touch that with concentration with one pointedness how could you ever act in a way if you know that and if you know that increasingly how could you ever act in a way that would cause harm to another when you know that you when you cause harm to another, you're causing harm to yourself. That sense of do good for one, you do good for all. The same is, the opposite is true. Kind, concentration, one-pointedness alone doesn't quite do it. There has to be, there has to be a clear, uh, it has to be accompanied with a uh, clear, clear, Perception or clear comprehension that I'm here. It can't just be falling into a state of oneness and mingling with the cosmos, <laughs> even though that's not so bad and that does happen from time to time. But often we will take these extraordinary, what even the Buddha called supramundane meditative experiences of, of concentration, where we feel that great sense of unity and we'll, spend, we'll, we'll see that concentration by itself is unstable. It doesn't last that long. But then we can spend the whole rest of our life or a retreat trying to recapture that experience. We call it carrying the corpses of old experience. It, in fact, uh, Hafiz also, while I'm at it, he had this poem to speak about this tendency to mistake what we're doing, uh, this the fact that we use concentration, mistaking it for the end goal. He said, and reminding us that it's not stable it's useful it's incredibly useful but it's not what it's about he says that it's always a danger for aspirants on the path when they begin to believe and act as if the 10,000 idiots who so long lived and ruled inside have all packed their bags and sk- or skipped town or died <laughs> somehow we we enter this state of unmixed happiness and super mundane joy, quietness of mind, and think, okay, I've arrived. And then, of course, we're, we're shocked when it goes away. And but instead, we use this power of mind in our practice. We use this composure, we use this one-pointedness to then let it imbue our observing power the capacity to see and to comprehend what's going on and just as the Buddha did and we do this in, when we enter the marketplace and this quality of concentration it has so many benefits but it's not the end game. It has so many benefits I consider this quality of concentration and the effort to cultivate this as the cultivation of love really the love muscle you know I'm I'm looking at David right now we look at people all the time I'm looking at you now I'm looking at you now it doesn't take long if I actually connect with you and if I sustain that connection these are two concentration factors anytime you look at somebody anytime I look at you and I sustain that look I'm something's going to happen. There's a, there's a result to that. And the result is that I'm going to start to feel a kind of kinship with you, a kind of comfort. Uh, and it'll bring me a kind of happiness. This is a quality that comes with concentration. So it's not just the gathering, it's also the sustaining that connection. And with that, I start to feel a sense of, of comfort and affection. And then I start to become more interested in you. And my attention becomes more wrapped. And I, there's a kind of aliveness. I feel a kind of immediacy and aliveness. And then I notice, the longer I'm sitting here, my mind isn't moving. I start to taste a little bit of that, that uh, one-pointedness. And all of a sudden, we're in this little cosmic egg. And that... And there's, there's the potential there for love. We can do that every single contact we have and develop concentration that way. It means whatever, whatever project we're doing, whatever, whatever, whenever we're walking down the street, if we connect and we sustain, we will find an interest in walking. We will find comfort in it. We'll find one-pointedness in it. We'll, be, we'll enter the stream of life, of that connection with life, that cosmic egg. But just for the sake of that experience, even though it's wonderful, the more concentration you have, the more you will want to experience that sense of immediacy. And, it, and its, its side effect or its benefit is it the feeling of concentration begins to decondition the habit of wanting to do anything that opposes calm and balance and peace. So You don't need as much stimulation. There's something even juicier in this completely ordinary thing of looking into somebody's eyes or taking a step. I had a thought once doing walking meditation. I don't know if this happened to you on the retreat, but I thought if I never did another thing my whole life, my life would be well spent. And it was just a step. Only meditators would understand this. <laughs> but it's really the, it's the function of discovering the extraordinary and the ordinary. But the Buddha didn't stop with discovering the extraordinary and the ordinary. He applied that concentration and the power of mind that comes from being living in this inexhaustible present. He applied it toward looking very carefully at the nature of things, just as Sharda was speaking about. And what he discovered applying, instead of just hanging out in that blissful cosmic bubble, he started applying it to tracking what's going on moment to moment. And in in retreat, we have this capacity, and if you go along in your practice, you have this capacity to develop this power to such an extent that you see those three characteristics very precisely. He saw that everything arose and passed. All sensations arose and passed away in constant flux. He saw the moods, he saw the emotions, saw the thoughts, saw the images. And he realized as he saw everything arising and passing, just as you may have touched during this retreat, he saw that, that as he saw everything arising and passing, he knew that there was nothing there that could be held on to that nothing was reliable as a place of refuge in the sea of changing conditions. And it also dawned on him that everything that was arising and passing was happening all by itself. Thoughts were coming unbidden, feelings, sensations, that there was no, there was no agent to this whole process. And so in a, in a flash of penetrating or liberating insight, he saw through the veil, the, the veils of life, he saw through the illusion of separateness, of self. And in the seeing through the illusion of separateness, of separate individuality, he saw through the illusion of other. He saw that there we are interconnectedness, but he saw this with cl- mindfulness and clear comprehension. Only way we develop that more. Profound insight knowledge is through paying careful attention to how things behave, to the nature of things, to what happens, what are those common characteristics. And as his mind saw the constant change in things, he he stopped grabbing, stopped pushing away. His mind relaxed and it opened. And so we're invited in every day of our life to keep Using our mindful attention, this is part of the, the, the factor of wise mindfulness, keep examining. With, in order to have any wisdom, you have to have mindful attention. Keep examining what's happening, what happens to it, how am I relating to it, is there grasping in my mind, is there aversion, am I straining to make something happen? And this is, again feeds back into effort. What am I making effort for? The encouragement coming from wise understanding is it is important to make effort to cultivate what is wholesome for the benefit of all, what will not cause harm, cultivate the wholesome. In this factor called wise effort, there are what are called the four efforts to cultivate the wholesome. It means everything we talked about: loving kindness, sila, or ethics. uh, Concentrate, cultivate everything that is useful and wholesome to maintain the wholesome. That's the second. To abandon the unwholesome, to stop doing the things in your life that cause you and others suffering. We carry all the ingredients to turn our life into a nightmare. How do we not do that? We infuse our moments with those, that space of choice that, that Sharda spoke about, that capacity to intervene. That depends on mindful attention. But the, it takes energy and effort to cultivate the wholesome and maintain it. It takes energy and effort to abandon the unwholesome and prevent in our life the unwholesome uh, from uh, from re-arising, How do we prevent the unwholesome from re-arising? We train ourselves in concentration in one-pointedness. One-pointedness in any moment of one-pointedness and so, the same is true for any moment of mindfulness in any moment of mindfulness or one-pointedness there is the absence of any defilement. There's the absence of what are called the hindrances. In a moment of mindfulness and concentration, in concentration, sometimes it just suppresses the hindrances. But with mindfulness, it literally erases the hindrances. When you're at- attentive, you cannot desire, you can't crave, you can't cling, you can't lust, you can't, you can't hate in the same instant. Because mindfulness has that quality of, of openness, of acceptance, of non-contentiousness. So this is, if you over and over again, you cultivate mindfulness in your daily life and this capacity to cultivate it in your daily life is with you literally from the moment you wake up in the morning till the time you go to bed. Because we have with us, the, we, we carry this capacity to to train our minds every moment again is this creative possibility now some people think you can even train it while you're sleeping but at least start with from the moment you wake up till the time you go to bed got just a few more minutes so our Part of the... I'm, I'm skipping around because I'm making it up as I go along, but, but part of wise effort to cultivate the wholesome, abandon the unwholesome, maintain the wholesome, prevent the unwholesome, training and concentration, requires a, a constancy of our energy. It requires a commitment. It requires a strong intention. And when we apply that strong intention whether it's for mindfulness or concentration or to not cause harm, to, see, to stop doing the things that harm ourselves and others, to stop clouding our mind with intoxicants, stop feeding the wanting mind, stop our compulsions, it takes a certain energy and effort. But that effort has to be balanced. It has to be not too much that we exhaust ourselves or become so tense in our practice, I know many of you discovered the balance of effort over the retreat it's the same in our life not too much so that we get tense not too little that we're, so we're spaced out and we lose our focus so every day consider how is what's what's the quality of my attention what's the quality of my effort what's the quality of my energy and if you're if it if you've gotten really dull do that in your life that helps rebuild your energy there's an appropriate self-interest, self-care that recharges our bat- that where we recharge our batteries when we need to. There's also an appropriate relaxing when we know we're getting tight, or increasing our the intensity of our practice when we know we're we're getting lazy. You can. Discover this for yourself. We all have this amazing creative capacity. We all have innate intelligence, Buddha nature. And so it's, it comes down to really trusting ourselves. So it's why the, this path is called a path of purification. We purify our actions because trying to practice without with living an unwise life or an un. Uh, unwise in our actions makes it really hard to be quiet. So we purify our actions. And it's essential that we purify our mind. That's this part. It's called the purification of mind. If we are able to purify our mind through energy, effort, concentration, and mindfulness, then it's possible to purify our view, the purification of view, to see deeply into the nature of reality. Every single person here, has that capacity but it all comes down to staying awake and staying right here right where life touches you so I think I'll end with the reminder that all of this this grand path of awakening is fulfilled by you sitting on the very cushion you are right now and not needing to go anywhere else but here This is called, from Donald Babcock, from the New Yorker magazine, 1947, The Little Duck. Now we're ready to look at something pretty special. It's a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold and he's thinking things over. (laughs) There's, (laughs) <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a big heaving in the Atlantic and he's part of it. He looks a bit like a Mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under a bow tree but he has hardly enough above the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is and neither do you, but he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That's religion and the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. So may all of us stay where we are and cultivate the path.